Well, we're starting this new series on the Holy Spirit tonight, and if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to read from two passages this evening. Uh, Our first passage is the first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, uh, and the first couple of verses, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So if you flip Genesis 1 up, and then if you also put a finger in Acts chapter 5, and verses 1 to 6, we're going to read a little story about Ananias and Sapphira. So we'll read Genesis 1 first, and then we'll turn to Acts chapter 5. And if you have a finger in Acts 5, uh, you'll be able to get there a little bit quicker. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some pew Bibles just sitting over here. And if you want to lift one of those, uh, please feel as though you can. So first reading then is Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. And as we read, we remember this is God's word to us. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then turn over to Acts chapter 5, just those two verses from Genesis. Uh, We're going to read Acts 5 verses 1 to 6 now. And we're told this, we're told, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Amen. Well, tonight, as I've said already, we're beginning this new five-part series on the Holy Spirit. And this series is going to run over the next five weeks and will bring us up to the beginning of December. Uh, This series comes on the back of our series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, That was a series that we began around this time last year and finished in February. I should say that all of the talks from that series are in the church podcast if you want to go back over them again. But you'll remember that the Apostles', Apostles Creed ends in this way. It ends with these words, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And we spent an evening on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our series on the creed. And I look back at the sermon this week and this is how it finished. I said, we're gonna come back to this. I think the Holy Spirit is too important to ignore. We really ought to know him better. And I suppose that is our aim in this series, to know more of who the Holy Spirit is and of how he works in our lives and of how he can help us as we live for the Lord Jesus. Uh, This series will be important for us because the Holy Spirit is very much seen or viewed as the least significant or the least important member of the Trinity. Uh, We all know who the Father is. uh, We all know who the Son is. But who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? Some of us are perhaps a little bit unsure. Uh, That's reflected in the 2010 movie, Heaven is for Real. 
Uh, it's based on a book by Todd Burpo, which recounts a three-year-old boy's alleged glimpse of heaven during an emergency surgery. Uh, deceased grandparents were described in detail. So was Jesus. Sitting on his lap, the boy discovered that Jesus, with sea-green bluish eyes, had a rainbow horse. Uh, even Gabriel was described in full color, along with God the Father, also with blue eyes, apparently a larger version of the famous angel. Yet the Holy Spirit was described in the book in this way. He was described as bluish, but hard to see. Bluish, but hard to see. And that description is perhaps a fitting way of opening this series. Who exactly is the mysterious third person of the Trinity? Why does he seem to possess less reality or at least fewer descriptive features than the Father and the Son? Why is he not mentioned as much in church life? There are some denominations and churches which focus more on the Holy Spirit, and we will cover different views of the Spirit's work in this series. But why is the Holy Spirit neglected in our tradition? It's possibly because we see and hear the excesses of other churches, speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, and we're perplexed because none of those things have, have ever happened in our experience. And as well as being perplexed, we're, we're perhaps a little bit put off by the seeming randomness of, of tongues and healing. And there's also a sense in which experiences like that can, can kind of create a bit of a hierarchy for Christians. We might be led to think that if we don't experience those amazing supernatural things, then we're not as spiritual as we should be. To, to, to end up talking about those spiritual gifts is actually to do a disservice to the, to the Bible's teaching on who the Holy Spirit is. The, the Spirit's work is, it's much, is much broader and much greater than the manifestation of a few spiritual gifts. I hope that's what we'll see as we work through this series, and I hope we will know him better uh, as we move into December. Uh, tonight is, is very much the introduction to this series. What we want to do is, is build a rounded picture of who the Spirit is. We're going to put the first building blocks in place, so to speak, tonight. Uh, work is continuing across the road, and the foundations are going to be put in place soon. Tonight, we're going to pour the foundations into this series, so to speak. And that makes this evening potentially the most important evening of the series. We're going to think about two things together, two essential building blocks for us as we think about who the Holy Spirit is. We, we covered these in that sermon on the Spirit a while ago, but it'll be helpful for us to remind ourselves of these very important truths. The two things that we're going to think about are on the screen. We're going to think about how the Holy Spirit is the third person and how the Holy Spirit is the life giver. First of all, the Holy Spirit is the third person. He's the third person of the Trinity. Uh, as Christians, we, we embrace a a, an historic formula about God's being. We say God is one in essence and three in person. God is one in essence and three in person. In other words, God is, is triune. God is, uh, is trinity. And this means that there are three persons within the Godhead. The persons are understood in theology as distinct characters. The differences among the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are real differences, but not essential differences. In other words, there's only one essence to the Godhead and not three. Now, let me help you understand that a little bit better. In our experience as human beings, each person we meet is a separate being. So I am a separate being to you. One person means one being and vice versa. But in the Godhead, there is one being with three persons. 
And we have to maintain that distinction in case we slip into what's known as polytheism. And polytheism is the view that there are three persons of the Godhead and they are three beings who are three separate gods. And that is not what we believe. We believe that God is one in essence and three in person. Now I realize that we've immediately jumped into the deep end at the beginning of this series, but it's vital that we're clear on who the Spirit is. He's the third person of the Trinity and he is fully God. Now none of us can plumb the depths of the Trinity comprehensively, but we can take some small steps to understand it better. Um, I have a rather big book at home called The Holy Trinity, and it's by a man called Robert Leatham. And in the book's introduction, Leatham quotes something that Sinclair Ferguson, another minister and theologian, once wrote to him. Sinclair Ferguson once said this. He said, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. And Ferguson is referring to John 17, the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus and some of the things that he says to his disciples. He's, he's, he's with his disciples, their world is about to fall apart, and he talks to them about the deep things of God. He talks to them about the Trinity. Now, we won't be able to plumb the depths of the Trinity, but it's important that we remember that God is one in essence and three in person. Now, the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person is seen in a multitude of ways in the Scriptures. The Bible repeatedly and consistently uses personal pronouns to refer to the Spirit. He is called he and him and so on. The Spirit is never called it, and you should never refer to the Spirit as it. The Spirit is, is not an impersonal force. He's a distinct person of the Trinity. Uh, the Bible also teaches us that the Spirit does things that we associate with personality. So he teaches, he inspires, he guides, he leads, he grieves, he, he convicts us of sin and, and so much more. Impersonal objects do not behave in that manner. Only a person can do those things. As well as being seen as personal in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is importantly seen as divine. Uh, we read that curious story of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5 a few, mo few moments ago. The, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they pretended that their donation to the church was greater than it was. They lied about the nature of the gift that they were making to God. Now, Peter was more concerned about the state of their, their souls than about the amount of money they were contributing. But notice, though, what Peter says in his rebuke to Ananias and Sapphira. He, he began by asking, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he finishes by saying, you have not lied to man, but to God. You haven't lied to man, but you've lied to God. So the, so the lie that Ananias told to the Holy Spirit was actually told to God. The, the clear implication from that little story is that the Holy Spirit is God. And in addition to that, the New Testament often describes the Holy Spirit as having attributes that are clearly divine. So, for example, Hebrews 9.14, we read that the Holy Spirit is eternal. 1 Corinthians 2.10 and 11, we read that the Spirit is omniscient. Both are attributes of God, and they are attributes of God that cannot be shared by man. So the Scriptures also tell us that the Spirit shares in the Trinitarian works of creation and salvation. That's why we read Genesis 1. It shows us that the Father commanded the world to come into being. 
We know who was the agent uh, that the Father used to bring the, the, bring the universe into being. That was the, the, the Word, the, the Logos, as, as John tells us in the first chapter of his Gospel, the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the Spirit was also involved in creation. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Out of this energizing work of the Spirit, life was brought forth. Now, I've just dumped a whole load of theology on you there, but there are some really important things for us to remember. First of all, God is one in essence and three in person, and the Spirit is not an impersonal force, and you should never call him or refer to him as it. He's a distinct person of the Trinity, and he is God, and he was involved in creation. It was through his life-giving work that the world came into being. And that leads us on to our second point this evening. As well as being involved in creation, the Spirit is also involved in our redemption. The Spirit is the third person and He is the life giver. Redemption, salvation, our rescue is a Trinitarian work. The Father sent the Son into the world. The Son performed all the work that was necessary for our salvation, living a life of perfect obedience and dying to make a perfect sacrifice for our sins. But none of those things benefit us until they are applied personally. Therefore, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit into the world to apply salvation to us. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The, the, the main and principal role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is to apply the work of Christ to believers. Uh, R.C. Sproul tells a really brilliant story about his wife coming to faith. Uh, he became a Christian in September 1957 and was engaged to be married. Uh, when he told his then fiance he had been converted, she thought that, she, that she thought he had lost his mind. And he also knew that he, he shouldn't marry an unbeliever, so he was in a bit of a sticky wicket. Uh, several months passed by and the issue hadn't been resolved. He ended up taking her to a Bible study and he says that he spent virtually the whole day on his knees praying that God would work in her life. She didn't say anything during, during the Bible study and was very quiet afterwards. But the next morning he met her and she said that she had a hard time sleeping because something had happened the night before. She had been converted to Christ through the study of the scriptures the night before. Recalling her conversion, Sproul writes this. He says... One of the clearest memories of that wonderful morning is of the moment when we were getting into my car. As she was telling me about her experience, she looked at me with great excitement and said, Now I know who the Holy Spirit is. Now I know who the Holy Spirit is. In her conversion, she had made a transition from understanding Christianity in an abstract sense to understanding it as a personal relationship with God. It's the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit to come to people who are spiritually dead. The, the, there, there may be nothing in the whole of the Bible that is more offensive to people in our world than the idea that every human being is born into a, into a state of spiritual death. Even within the church, this doesn't have full acceptance. Most professing Christians acknowledge that there's some defect in the human race, that we're all sinners and none of us is perfect, but we kind of stop short of acknowledging that we're spiritually dead when we come into the world. 
Even the great Billy Graham used to talk about the natural man being mortally sick to the extent that he's 99% dead, but he wouldn't go that one more step, that 1% more and say 100%. The scriptures are clear though. Think of what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead, not sick, not unwell, not distorted. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But Paul is clearly saying that we are dead on arrival spiritually. We're not just weak. We're not just ailing. We're not critically ill. There is no spiritual heartbeat, no spiritual breathing, no spiritual brainwave activity. We're spiritually dead unless God the Holy Spirit makes us alive. It's his work to recreate people as he regenerates them. The Spirit gives life to people who have no spiritual life. Regeneration is a work that the Holy Spirit does immediately upon the souls of people. His, His radical work of regeneration involves at least three things. It involves intellectual illumination. The kingdom of God, which stood unrecognized beforehand, becomes clearly visible. The Spirit makes us able to understand something that we didn't before, namely the gospel and of how how Jesus has died for us. Uh, And it also involves liberation of the will from its bondage to sin. We're incapable of entering the kingdom of God without regeneration. Sinners can't enter God's perfect kingdom. And there's also a cleansing aspect to regeneration. Uh, Titus 3 verse 5 tells us that God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In regeneration, desires are renewed and cleansed by what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. The Spirit regenerates and creates a spiritual appetite in us before unknown. All of what I've said on the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration is beautifully summarized in this Old Testament passage. Listen to something of the Spirit's work from Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give to you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, notice the capital S there, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the Holy Spirit is the third person, the third person of the Trinity, He's not an impersonal force and should never be referred to as it. And he's the life giver. We are spiritually dead and we need the Spirit to personally apply the work of Christ to us. His life-giving work involves regeneration. He he is the one who gives life to people who have no spiritual life. What should we take away from all that we've considered tonight? Realize that we've sort of jumped in at the deep end, but what, what, what can we take away Well, one of the things that we're going to do as we move through this series is sing hymns about the Spirit's work. And we've done that already with our opening hymn, Glory Be to God the Father. We we have declared that God, uh, that the Spirit is God uh, along with the Father and the Son. In just a moment, we're going to sing the hymn, O Church Arise. And the final verse of that hymn goes like this. So Spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. So practically speaking, what is it that we need to pray tonight? We need to pray 
So Spirit, come. Give us the strength to follow Jesus, to jump the hurdles that we face, to be faithful to our Saviour, so that one day we might be called good and faithful servants. And we also need to pray, Spirit, come and apply the work of Christ to those who are spiritually dead, to people that we know and love, to people who come to church Sunday by Sunday, but who are spiritually dead. Spirit, regenerate sinners who are following the course of this world. So tonight has been the introduction to the series and we've put the first building blocks in place. We've seen that the Holy Spirit is the third person and that he is the life giver. Next week, we're going to think about how he is our advocate. But for now, let's close our time thinking about who, who the Holy Spirit is by praying together. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we have considered who you are tonight. And again, we praise you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the triune God who has worked for our redemption. We thank you that as the Father, you planned our redemption. We thank you that as the Son, you, you accomplished our redemption on the cross. And we praise you that your Spirit comes and applies the work of Christ to us, even though we are spiritually dead. Father, we thank you for your grace to us through your Son, Jesus. But we pray tonight for more of the Spirit's work within our hearts and within the life of our church family. We pray that you would come, Spirit, to give us the strength to follow Jesus. And we pray, Spirit, that you would come and apply the work of Christ to those who are spiritually dead, those who we know and love and who don't love Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to pray to that end in the rest of our time together. Bless us and encourage us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.